Please open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. It is on page 1007. I think we've been on page 1007 since July, but um, Steve is preaching on Hebrews next week, and I think he'll make it to page 108. Well, as you, you probably know if you've been with us, this, this chapter, Hebrews 11, is really a history of the faith of God's people. It's a history of their faith. And we are, we're spending so much time on this passage because it's really like hot links to all the rest of the Bible because it's just rehearsing for us the history of God's people. And there's so many individual stories that we can really spend a lot of time in. So to catch us up to the point where we are today in this history, I thought it would be good if I sort of explain the, the history of the faith of God's people in my own words. So here we go. Here's the story of the history of the faith of God's people. Once upon a time, before there was time, if you can wrap your mind around that, God spoke and created the world. He created the world in, into existence by his speaking. The whole world, the whole space-time continuum came into being through God's word. But the crown of that creation was, was the special creatures that God made in his image. They were like God. And therefore, they interacted with God in a way that was different than all of the rest of creation. You see, all of creation obeyed God's voice. The the stars, the animals, the rocks, the trees, they all obeyed God in, in their own way. But only humans have this moral center to our lives, that our, our act of obedience is also an act of worship. But, unfortunately, humans did the unthinkable. They chose not to listen to God. They chose to go their own way. They didn't take God's word as absolutely true in the foundation of their lives. Instead, they wanted to lay their own foundation. In a sense, they wanted to be God unto themselves. And they sat in judgment over God's word. And they judged it not worthy of following And once they did that, their relationship with God was forever changed. They now deserved his wrath, and they knew it. So they hid, and they ran away from God. And they covered themselves up because they knew there was something deeply wrong with them. But God was gracious. And he did not execute final judgment right there and then. But rather, he let them live because he had a plan to save them. Someone would come through the woman's seed who would deliver them. And so, in an act of faith, the first people, Adam and Eve, had children. But their first children, Cain and Abel, ended up being a parent's worst nightmare. When time came for them to make sacrifices for the Lord, Cain offered some of his leftovers, while Abel offered his best. And God accepted Abel's best, and this made Cain jealous. So Cain murdered his brother. And Cain went away and founded a city. And the wickedness just increased in that city, generation after generation. But God intervened in history. God gave Adam and Eve another child named Seth. Seth took the place of Abel as a godly man from whom would come godly descendants. 
And from Seth's line came people who walked with God, like Enoch, who we looked at last week. By faith, he walked with God so much that God just took him home. But sadly, Seth's line too became corrupt. The godly line intermarried with the ungodly line to the point where they were almost indistinguishable. The wickedness of mankind was so great on the earth that the Bible says every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Think about that. All their desires were to do wrong. What would it be like to live in that world? Well, this made God very sad. He was grieved that he made people, so he decided to destroy them all. Except there was one person left in that godly line of Seth who walked with God, just as Enoch had walked with God. And this is where we pick up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 of the story today. This We're going to look at one verse today. This one verse describes how the faith of one man saved the world. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this example of Noah here. And we pray that we too would live by faith. Lord, teach us about the nature of faith through the example of Noah, that we may trust in you more, that we may glorify you in our lives. Oh Lord, teach us that faith is not a trifle thing. Faith matters. It matters more than anything else, whether or not we believe your promises. Oh Lord, increase the importance of faith in our lives, that we would take seriously your promises and we would examine our hearts for unbelief. Lord, make us people of faith, who through their trust in you, demonstrate your trustworthiness, and demonstrate both your salvation through Christ, and the condemnation that is inevitable for anybody outside of Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that our faith would have that double-edged sword, just as Noah's did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, You have to remember what the author is doing in Hebrews chapter 11. He is telling his readers, and by the way, that includes us, right? Because we are his readers. He is telling us about the great acts of faith so that we can go and do likewise. And with each story, we learn something about the nature of faith. And I think with Noah's story, there's a lot here, but I think we can boil it down to that we learn about the character of faith and the consequence of faith. The character of faith and the consequence of faith. If you're taking notes, that's the outline. The character of faith and the consequence of faith. Now, what do I mean by the character of faith that we see here? I mean, the answer to the question, when I exercise faith, what is it that I actually do? What is the act of faith? What is the experience like of having faith? My guess is that a lot of us would struggle trying to articulate that experience. And that's a problem. Because if we can't describe what having faith is, what it's like, how will we know when we're not experiencing it? 
how will we know the difference between faith and non-faith? So I think this description of the character of faith is very helpful. And we can you know, use it as a flashlight to shine in our hearts and evaluate where, where we are. So let's look at the first half of verse 7 again and see the character of faith. By faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Now, I think we can understand the character of faith in two aspects here. First, faith responds to the word of God. Faith is a response to the word of God. As I studied this passage, I was struck by how closely the author ties faith by faith to the warning that we see here, right? The original uh, language, it actually says, by faith being warned by God, Noah. He, the, the author wants to put faith right next to that warning. And that warning, of course, is what God says to Noah in chapter 6. You can read that later if you want. God comes to Noah and says, I have determined to destroy all flesh. Construct an ark of gopher wood, for behold, I am bringing a flood over all the earth. Now, friends, if that's not a warning, I don't know what is. And the warning, you have to understand, is a revelation from God by his word. It's not that Noah was out one day and he saw an eagle flying around and just had an impression that, well, God might destroy the world with a flood, so he should build a really big boat. That's not what happened. God's word revealed to Noah God's plan about events as yet unseen. The Hebrews 11 verse 7 stresses the unseen character of the warning that God brought to Noah. And that unseen quality of the events is very important for understanding the, the character of faith. Faith is responding to God's word but it is particularly responding to events in God's word that are not yet seen, or realities in God's word that we can't see. <clears throat> Think of it this way. It would not require faith if Noah had seen storm clouds gathering for the last six months. <laughs> and, and the weather channel back then had pred been predicting 40 days of rain. And then God would come to him and just you know, reveal to Noah what he already knew. No, in fact, many people theorize that before the flood, it had never rained. If you want more about that, talk to Keith. He has some good reasons why that is likely true. And assuming he and others are right in that way, not only was the flood an event as yet unseen, it was an event as yet unimaginable. I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the conversation with Noah and his wife right after Noah got the message. Dear, I've got to build a really big boat. What's a boat? Because it's going to rain. What's rain? There's be a flood. What's a flood? See, they don't have concepts for these realities, and yet God says that they are going to come. It's the nature of faith to respond to what God says as if it is real, even if we cannot see it. Because it is real, if it exists in the mind of God, if God says that it's going to happen. We've already covered this aspect of faith in chapter 11, when the author says, faith is, or chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Um, 
Verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, what? Not seen. Yeah. Faith is being convinced that things that God says will happen, will happen. Even when we can't imagine how. Now, as I said before, the author isn't telling us this so that we can be entertained by, you know, stories from the good old days. He wants us to go and do likewise. He wants us to live out this faith. So the question that presents uh, to us from this passage is this. What unseen events that God has decreed to come about do I need to consider as real? Or, Or put it this way. Knowing that faith arises out of the word of God, what aspects of that word should be the basis of my faith now? How do I need to respond to events as yet unseen? What events do I need to respond to? What does that response look like? And I think the first thing we need to realize is that for us today, we're we're not in that different of a situation of Noah's. And that's not just because of the hurricanes going around. No. Um, Is the world wicked and violent today? Yes. We live in a world of, where racism is normal and abuse is normal. We live in a world where innocent people get killed by those who are supposed to protect them and where people rebel against authorities. Is God going to do something about that? Yes, he is. Just like in the days of Noah, there will be a final judgment. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the judge. We read in the book of Hebrews that the Father says to the Son, this is the Father speaking to Christ about Christ's role as judge of the world. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is king. He receives that from the Father. The Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is the rightful king. And he will return to sit upon his throne and rule the world in perfect righteousness. Now, are these events seen or unseen? They're unseen, right? But they're no less real. They will happen. God knows the day and the hour in which Christ will come. It will happen. It is real. But there's, excuse me, but there's really good news. You see, just like in the days of Noah, God did not merely tell Noah, oh, there's going to be a flood, you're going to all die. No, God revealed a way of salvation, didn't he? He said to Noah, build a boat so that through that boat, you and your family and all who are in it will be saved. And in the same way, God has provided now a way that we can escape this judgment that is coming. Jesus is the true and better ark. Because all those who come into him are safe. And the Bible talks about the idea of union with Christ, in which we who believe in Christ are are covenantally united with Him. We become one spirit with Him. The Bible views us, therefore, in Him. And in Christ, we get safe passage through the judgment of God. In Christ, the judgment of God does not harm us. And the Bible says, just like in the days of Noah, That we get into Christ by faith. 
We even, the Bible even uses the language of believing into Christ. And then we won't experience the judgment to come. We've already passed from death to life, the Bible says. So our faith arises out of the warning in Scripture that there will be a coming judgment. And the command to escape that judgment is not to build an ark, but to believe in Jesus. And our faith is what brings us into a relationship with Jesus that that allows us to escape the judgment. Now, friends, I wonder, how would your life change if that unseen event of judgment had a stronger place in your life now? Or to put it a different way, how would you exercise your faith better if you kept more at the forefront of your minds the warning about judgment so that your faith could more consciously respond to that warning of judgment. Let me give you an illustration that I got from an evangelist named Ray Comfort. He says this. He gives this illustration. Let me read it to you. He says, two men are seated on a plane. The first is given a parachute and told to put it on because it will improve his flight. He is a little skeptical at first because he doesn't see how a parachute will improve his flight. But after a little while, he decides to experiment and see if the claim is true. So he puts it on. He notices the weight of it on his shoulders and that he can't sit up straight. But he knows that he has promised it will improve his flight. So he decides to give it a little bit of time. As he is waiting, he notices that some of the other passengers are laughing at him. And after a while, he can't stand it anymore. He gets up and he throws the parachute on the ground. And bitterness and disillusionment fill his heart because from his perspective, he was told an outright lie. A second man is told to put on a parachute because at any moment he will be jumping 25,000 feet out of the plane. He gratefully puts it on. He doesn't even notice the weight on his shoulders nor that he can't sit up straight. His mind is consumed with what would happen if he had to jump without the parachute. So what's going on there? Two men are essentially asked to have faith in a parachute. One is asked to have faith based on the things that he can see, right? That is the way, in this par- the, way the parachute is supposed to improve his flight. The other man is asked to have faith in the parachute based upon events as yet unseen, you know, the future jump. Now, assuming the person who told the the second guy that he was going to need to jump was reliable, whose faith in this story actually makes sense? The second guy, right? And in that same way, our faith in Jesus will really only make sense if seen in light of the reality of the judgment to come. Now, I think we can slightly critique this illustration or bring in at least some other balancing truths that the Bible does stress that Jesus has come to give us life now. We can't reduce Jesus to a parachute. His function is much broader than that. We're supposed to have joy and peace now. The only life worth living is a life with Christ. And yet, every good thing we experience about Jesus now is tied to the future reality of his return. Paul even said that if it was for this life only that he trusted in Jesus, well, he's of all men to be pitied. This life is not our best now. This life is is where we anticipate the life to come. 
And the more we keep in mind, in the forefront of our minds, the reality of judgment, the more likely we will live as that second man who doesn't even notice the relatively minor inconveniences of being a Christian in the here and now. Because we are so grateful that we do not jump into God's presence without being safe in Christ, without being found in Him. My Christian friends, don't lose sight of the fact that the very best way in which Jesus will help you in this life is not giving you a smooth and happy life now. You do not believe in him ultimately for that reason. You believe in him to save you from the wrath to come. And and my non-Christian friends, I pray that you would take refuge in Jesus. There is no reason why you should experience the judgment of God. Because Jesus has come and he is here and he says those who believe in him will find forgiveness in his name. So trust in him. I don't want to lie to you, though, and tell you that that means that if you believe in Jesus, your life will go exceedingly easy for you. But at any moment, you could appear before the judgment seat of Christ, where His righteousness will penetrate into your soul in a way that you never dreamed possible. And you will feel a sense of shame and vulnerability and guilt that you can't even imagine unless you come in Christ. In Christ alone, you will be saved. So so please believe in Jesus. And this brings us to the second aspect of the character of faith. And that is that our faith responds to God's word by receiving it in reverent fear. So first aspect was our faith responds to God's word. Second aspect, we do so in and through reverent fear. And we see that here. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the salvation of his household. So God gave the warning, and faith responds to that warning, not simply by giving intellectual assent to it. So so how do we respond to the word of God? Not simply by giving intellectual assent to it. Okay, I... I believe that is a true fact among other true facts. Nor is it simply by doing what it says. Because there are a lot of things that we follow and do what it says, even if we don't give a whole lot of weight to it. Right? No. The unique thing about the character of faith here is how we receive God's word with reverent fear. And this word, this phrase is a compound word of a a word in Greek that literally means something like to receive something in a godly way. It implies that we attribute a sense of really high honor to it. And the idea of fear here doesn't so much mean dread, because we see all throughout the book of Hebrews that we are, we are supposed to have confidence as we come before God. So this fear is not opposed to confidence, but rather it, it means that idea of being in awe and wonder of something. The the sense of seeing God's word as weighty and important and, and majestic and powerful. It's not to be trifled with. In other words, faith involves receiving God's word, responding to God's word in such a way uh, that is different from the way we receive and respond to anything else. It's not simply believing the word and following the word, but doing it with a sense of grave importance. 
And if you think about it, that's the only way that Noah would have constructed an ark for the salvation of his household, right? We already said that the warning that Noah received was concerning events as yet unseen, right? And for that reason, and that reason alone, it was a great act of faith. But you have to realize that Noah faced incredible opposition, right? You start building a boat the size of one and a half football fields in a place that hadn't seen rain before, among a people who are violent and whose every intention of their thoughts is evil continually, don't you think you're going to get some pushback? Don't you think people will come from miles just to laugh at you and mock you? And you have to realize this was not a weekend project where he could just sort of grin and bear it for a little while. No, this took years. Noah put up with this scorn and mockery for years. Talk about a man with no fear of man. Someone willing to go against the flow. You aren't going to do this unless the word of God has such a place of high honor and importance in your life that you listen to that above and beyond anything else. Because at some point you're going to say, forget this, it ain't worth it. Unless God's word has such weight and importance that it makes you sick even to contemplate going against it. And this should lead us to ask the question of ourselves, what place does the word of God have in your life, in my life? One of the things I've seen as Christians mature is that they develop this healthy sense in which going against God's word is just revolting to them. It doesn't mean that they don't sin from time to time. But it it means that that to even consider going against God's word makes makes them sick. It's just not what you do. It's like an absolute rule in their lives. You don't go against God's word. That's not an option to consider. Oh, well, we could just violate the word of God here. No, that doesn't enter our minds. We don't have time to explore it here, but perhaps when you get home or through the week, you read Psalm 119, which is all about the word of God. And it speaks of the reverence and the the sense of wonder and importance that the word of God has in the psalmist's life. Read that and ask yourself the question, do I have the same sense of reverence and respect for the word as the psalmist does? Does the word have such a privileged position in my life of being first in loyalty, first in priority, first in importance? Well, we must move on. Second main point in the sermon the consequence of Noah's faith. We've seen the character of Noah's faith, now the consequence of Noah's faith. We'll look there at the second half of verse 7. By this, and the this there, by the way, it's clear from the the grammar in, in Greek that it's faith. By this, by faith, he, Noah, by faith, Noah, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I want us to think for a moment about Noah's faith condemning the world. Noah's faith condemned the world. By faith, Noah condemned the world. Now, think of it this way. How did his faith condemn the world? Well, quietly building an ark in the face of persistent persecution, 
That presses upon the people that God is real and God's judgment is real like nothing else. Right? Think about it. By faith, is building, by faith, Noah is building an ark. He's building a vehicle for the purpose of escaping God's wrath. What better way to show to people that God's wrath is real? I mean, if you live in Noah's neighborhood at this time, you can't be neutral towards the fact that a really big boat is being built up, right? I mean, you're, you're going to have to deal with that whenever you walk to the grocery store or look out the window, right? Noah, and you know that Noah would not be building this boat if he thought everyone was just okay. You're okay and I'm okay. And, and God would never, ever actually condemn anyone. No matter how you lived, you'll be fine. Noah wouldn't be building the boat if that's what he believed. The boat itself, built as it is by Noah's faith in response to the warning, is a testimony, is itself a warning of God's judgment and condemnation. And either you accept its verdict on you and then beg Noah for a spot in the ark, or you reject it and you ridicule him. But either way, it speaks to you of judgment. And either way, you've got to deal with what it says. And my Christian friends, do you realize that your faith does the same thing? Your faith condemns the world. We might not like to think of our faith condemning those around us, those who we love. But that is the inevitable consequence. We said before that our faith arises in response to God's warning of judgment, right? Not, our faith is not an attempt, it does not arise in an attempt to have our best life now. Because if it did so, it wouldn't speak at all of condemnation. Our faith arises out of the warning that God is going to judge, and the only way to escape that judgment is in and through Christ. And so our faith testifies very clearly that we are not okay, and you are not okay. And there is something desperately wrong with us. For otherwise, why would we be believing in Jesus as we are? Our faith is a testimony to the fact that the world is doomed apart from Christ. That is why Paul can say in his second letter to the Corinthians that our faith to some is an aroma of life to life and to others an aroma of death to death. To those who believe the gospel, it's an aroma of life because it is more testimony to the fact that the Savior is real. But to those who have rejected the gospel, it is an aroma of death because it reminds them of the wrath to come. Now, in saying this, I I want you to understand something important that is often misunderstood. Our faith, our quiet faith, is a testimony to the gospel. But we still need to open our mouths and actually share it. We still need to do that. I've heard people quote Francis of Assisi who says, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. And that misses something really important. It misses the fact that the gospel is news, and we must speak news in order for it to have any effect. Right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Remember the first point. Faith is a response to the word of God. And how is someone going to respond to the word of God unless they hear it? So so we need to open our mouth and speak. But I think Francis of Assisi is on to something too. And that is that after we have verbally shared the gospel, the loudest way that we can condemn the world 
is by living out a quiet life of faith. We don't beat people over the head with a black King James Bible and tell them they're sinning every other thing they do. That won't make them feel condemned. It'll make them feel justified, justified that they're not you. Rather, we live a quiet faith depending upon God in all areas of our lives. This is why Peter said that in order to have a good witness to outsiders, to those outside the faith, we must sanctify Jesus as Lord in our hearts and give an answer for the hope that is in us with gentleness and reverence. He said that we need to do this even when they revile us and persecute us. The irony is that when believers are condemned by the world, their faith condemns the world. And so, friends, what is the quality of your faith Speak to the unbelievers around you. What does your faith say to others about the gospel? Do you live in such a way that they see in your faith that there is a great Savior? Because if they do, then they might see that there is something great that they need to be saved from. And maybe they will trust in the Savior too. The point here is that your faith has consequences. Consequences of things in areas that you can't even imagine. God does amazing things with our faith. So cultivate faith and see what God will do. And that brings us to the last point of the consequence of our faith. Not only does faith condemn the world, it is also our ticket to the world to come. Look at the last part of verse 7. By faith, Noah condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, I admit that this last part is a bit confusing when you actually try to sit down and think, what does it really mean? I read the commentators, and I can comfort you with the fact that they are confused as well. So let me give you my best attempt to understand it. And if you have a different understanding, you can let me know afterwards and we can figure it out together. But I think what he's referring to here with Noah's faith is the unique role that Noah had in establishing a new world order. Right? He had a role that not everybody else does because it was through him that the world was, in one sense, made new. And I think in that way, Noah here is gesturing towards Christ and the unique role that Christ had. I say that in part because there are a number of key words in this description of Noah's faith that that ultimately point to Christ. The first word is that word heir, right? Noah is the heir. And when we read that word heir, we're meant to ultimately think of Jesus. Because how does the book of Hebrews begin? In many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as heir of all things. The son, Jesus, is the climactic heir. And then the author of Hebrews from there goes on to develop the theme of Jesus' faith. Throughout chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is the one who patiently endured suffering, trusting in God's promise. And as a result of his faith, God brought him through to the other side, and now he is the heir of all things. Now Jesus, through his faith, gets the world. 
and Noah here prefigures Jesus' faith because Noah goes into the ark amidst the jeers and persecutions, amidst a land that is violent and filled with, with evil desires. And through his faith, God brings him through. And then Noah steps out into a whole new world. It is not populated by the ungodly line of Cain. They have no claim on that land any longer. But see, it's not only for Noah, is it? It is for Noah and his household. By faith, Noah built an ark for the saving of his household. That's another key word in the book of Hebrews. Because it is also used in reference to Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that we are his household. If we hold fast to our boasting and our confidence and our hope. One day, Jesus will step out into a completely new world, the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness dwells. And no longer will there be any suffering and death or tears. But he will not step into that world alone. He will go with his household, with those who have believed in him. We're talking about the consequence of our faith here. And the most consequential consequential act of faith is the faith of Jesus, by which he establishes the whole new world order. But our faith is consequential as well. Because by that faith, we are united to Christ, so that we share with him in that new world order. And our faith testifies to its reality, even though we can't see it yet. So friends, how does this passage, how is this passage going to make a difference in your life this week? Well, first and foremost, I hope it underscores for you the importance of faith. We need scripture to remind us of the importance of faith because, quite honestly, in most of life, faith isn't as important, right? Most of life, we are dealing with, and I'm talking about you know, your jobs and everything, not, not saying faith in Christ is important, but faith itself is not the, the bread and butter of most of life because you're dealing in most of life with the areas of things that are seen, Right? But the most important things in life are not seen. The things of the judgment of God, of salvation from God, the new world that Jesus has won for us. And among those things, faith is everything. Faith is the whole ballgame. So how do we bring those things into our life now? We grow in faith. So friends, apply this message by learning how to distinguish faith from unbelief in your heart. What areas of your life are marked by unbelief? In what way does God's word not have the kind of weight and importance that it should? What more important tasks could you possibly give yourself to in this life? than cultivating a deeper faith. Let's pray.